You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Before I dismiss Redemption Hill kids, please remain standing. Um, Once again, parents, if you're sending your kids into Redemption Hill kids, um, the kids ages five to nine, this is the question that they'll be learning this morning. So once again, I'm going to Say the question from the New City Catechism and then from our Confession of Faith, we have the answer. So here's the question this morning. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? With me. By his perfect obedience and sacrifice, offered up to God once and for all through the eternal Spirit, the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God. And through this, He has procured reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. Amen. That's good stuff. You may be seated. Um, If it serves you, we have classes 2 to 4 and then 5 to 9. You can go right across the hallway. Just remember, parents, to pick up your kiddos. If your kids are still in service. You can grab kids' sermon notes. We also have totes that are well supplied. You can grab that. And at the end of this, at the end of the service, kids, if you fill this out, come up front, and I got some goodies for you. Also, parents, if you have your kids in Redemption Hill Kids, and it serves you, I got an extra New City Catechism book that you can use with your kids at home. So after the service, if this serves you, you can come grab it for me. I've had a couple extra ones uh, laying around. All right, after a couple weeks off, as you know, we're back in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, um, it's in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. As I've said, this sermon has been called, like, the greatest sermon ever preached, right? Now, what Matthew recorded, like, if you'd read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it'd take about 15 minutes. Not long. I mean, I preached 40 <laughs> Did Jesus preach a sermon 15 minutes long? I don't think so. I think it's a safe assumption that Jesus preached a much longer message, but what we have in Matthew 5-7 to are the essential elements of Jesus' sermon. I'm not bothered by this. God divinely inspired the gospel writer Matthew to write down what we just need to hear. Certainly Jesus said much more in his earthly ministry. But what we have right here is what we need to hear from God. So as a reminder, the flow of this of the Sermon on the Mount is heart work, which really applies today when we talk about what it means to be pure in heart. It's heart work with the Beatitudes, and then Jesus shifts gears in the middle of Matthew 5, and he's talking about how does your heart map on with your everyday life. You should also know that the Sermon on the Mount contains the most, I think, challenging words in Holy Scripture. When you really look at it, you say, oh, how does this apply to my life? These are perhaps the most challenging words you could read in Holy Scripture. Do you want to know what it means to, lead, to live for God, right? That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we are taking it slow, as you know, through the Sermon on the Mount. At present, as I've said, we've got about 30 sermons mapped out. And the reason why I can go slow is that Jesus talks about an array of topics. And that's what you're finding in the Sermon on the Mount. Like every week is a new sermon, I'm, and I'm guessing by the time I'm done, there's 30 distinct and different sermons, which is a little different than what happened when we went through the book of Esther. 
we kind of hit the gas a little bit, right? Taking a couple of chapters at a time, and the topic was really the same, the providence of God. Sermon on the Mount, very different. And so because it's different, it's a different genre, uh, we approach it differently. This beatitude, the one that we're looking at today, uh, might seem cryptic or Gnostic at first glance, but as we dig beneath the surface, we will see a big, we'll have a bigger vision of who God is and what he has done for us to cleanse our hearts. So I hope that by the time I'm done, we'll be captivated by what God has done in Christ, and we would understand that we have a tremendous privilege to see God, right? Because that's the beatitude. What does it mean to see God? How do we see God? So I'm going to pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll dig right into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Even just just one verse can change lives. And we trust, we know that the Holy Spirit is indeed here and at work in this church, in your church. And I pray that you would help us to see your word clearly, but also apply your word. Lord, we want to see you, not only this morning, but every day, every hour, every moment of our entire lives, here on earth and throughout eternity. We want to see you. So help us to understand this precious truth. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been saying from the beginning of this series that the way to understand the word blessed, right? We got blessed are, blessed are, blessed are is to think about it as flourishing. What does it mean to flourish as you follow Christ? Well, these beatitudes are the hallway that lead to true blessedness or flourishing, right? If you allow the the Holy Spirit to do the, the heart work, then you will find at the end of the hallway a picture of what it looks like to flourish in this life. The beatitudes... Some would say, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm tempted to really agree with this 100%, that these are this, the foundation of godly living, these Beatitudes. Most people want to live a good life, right? Like you just go down the street, interview someone like, hey, do you want to live a good life? Who's going to say no to that? Most people want that. Most people want to flourish in life. You've heard that flourishing is like fulfilling the American dream. Like, that's the good life. And there are other perspectives of what it means to live the good life. Well, Jesus tells you, tells me, what it looks like to flourish, what it looks like to live the good life. What Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount pushes back against the, certainly the American dream. Pushes back against that hard. The Sermon on the Mount also challenges the notion that flourishing can happen if you just look within yourself, right? Our culture is obsessed with the self instead of the other. (laughs) The only reason to look within yourself is to see your sin and your great need for God. All of these beatitudes are spiritual arrows aimed at your heart to help you focus on Christ. One of the mysteries of the beatitudes is figuring out the reason for the order. You ever that ever cross your mind like what's up with the order of the beatitudes? As I look at the list of beatitudes, an argument could be made that the sixth beatitude is like the most significant beatitude. 
Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this beatitude. We come now to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances. Like, think about that. Think about what he's saying here. One of the greatest utterances. A lot has been spoken throughout human history. (laughs) And Lloyd-Jones is saying this is one of the greatest things ever spoken, found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. Anyone who realizes even something of the meaning of the words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, can approach them only with a sense of awe and complete inadequacy. So, amuse me for a moment. Let's say Martin Lloyd-Jones is right in his evaluation on the sixth beatitude. Do you approach this beatitude with a sense of inadequacy? I know I do. What is more important in, in life than to see God? I mean, the question's not rhetorical. There is nothing more important in life than to see God. John Calvin says this about this beatitude, to behold God is the end and purpose of all of our loving activity. Yes, we exist for the glory of God. Yes, I'm not dismissing that. But I think part of living for the glory of God is rightly placing yourself in position to see God. Every moment of your life should be oriented toward beholding God. The devil and the things of this world are doing anything and everything to keep you from beholding God, to keep you from seeing God. Therefore, this beatitude, in a sense, and we'll see this at the very end, is a call to action. How can you see God? How is that even possible? Well, Jesus gives us the answer, a pure heart. A pure heart. That is how you see God. Unlike the previous five Beatitudes, this Beatitude requires, I think, a little extra explaining. Here's what I mean. First, what is the heart? Have you ever thought about that? You see it all the time in Scripture. What is the heart? I mean, Jesus is not talking about the organ within your body, right? So what does the Bible mean when it uses the word heart? I want to answer that question. Second, if God is spirit, John 4, 24... How can we see God? You see the conundrum there? Are Matthew 5.8 and John 4.24 contradicting each other or something else going on? Our ability to pursue purity rests on rightly understanding the noun that we have in this verse, heart, and then the verb, see. What's going on here? Now, if you're in a community group, I wonder if you noticed a reoccurring theme as we've walked through um, this, these teachings about marriage. It kind of applies to this beatitude. The heart is constantly being addressed. Your heart. Before actions are addressed, motives are addressed, and motives reside in the heart. It is just not your intellect and understanding addressed in Matthew 5.8. So what is the heart? We read about the heart, like I said, all throughout Scripture. It's mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. Uh, Read with me Deuteronomy 6, which is repeated several times in the New Testament. And what I'm about to read is called the Shema. I've referenced it several times as we've looked at the Beatitudes, but here it is again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
Now here's the charge. Here's the command. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your, you all know this, your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. Here's what's helpful to know. Ancient Israel understood the heart to be a place of emotions, desires, and your intellect. Israel did not have like a developed understanding of the brain like we have today, right? Science and technology has revealed so much about the human brain. They obviously didn't have that. So, so much more is going on as they, as they say and write the word heart and as they hear it. The word heart is the central place of a person's being. You need to understand the word heart as more of a, in a more holistic way. How does a person know something? The heart. How does a person discern right from wrong? The heart. Where does wisdom reside? See the book of Proverbs, right? The heart. Where do you experience pain and joy? The heart. And as I've already said, heart is the place where your motives reside. Why do you do what you do? Your heart. So, the heart is complex. I think that's fair to say. But more than complex, your heart is broken and wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Like, wow. Jeremiah is not mincing words here. He has a strong opinion about the heart and what's going on in your heart. Now, the question is, is he overstating the problem? Like, is he just speaking hyperbole? When he says it's desperately sick, I don't think so. Apart from Christ, a person's heart is wicked and sick. Hear that from me this morning. Apart from Christ, your heart is wicked and sick. It just eats at itself because of sin. In the context of the prophet Jeremiah, he witnessed the wicked heart of Israel as they constantly turned to idols and away from their creator. Right? That's still going on today. We pursue idols all the time. Our, our hearts are an idol factory. That's what was going on at the time Jeremiah penned those words. And that's what's going on today. We turn away from our Creator toward idols. Here's another time in history where we see the wickedness of the human heart. You might remember the great King David. What do we say about King David? He was a man after God's own heart, right? The man after God's own heart. Well, that didn't translate very well when he committed adultery. But what happened with David after that? tragic scene, has adultery, kills Uriah. We read in Psalm 51 these words, a moment of conviction. What does he cry out to God? Create in me a clean, that word is also pure, create in me a pure heart. Psalm 51. Now why did David pray like that? Because he knew his heart was wicked and he needed help. That's why he prayed like that. He knew his own heart. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, as you can tell, he's been my companion throughout this journey in the Sermon on the Mount. He made an observation about his time and culture that still applies and is true to this day. He said that there is a propensity to blame the problems of mankind on the environment or cultural surroundings. He's saying this back in the 50s, 60s, right? In other words, if a person does a bad thing, there must be external factors that cause the bad thing. Jones says this is a tragic fallacy, and I absolutely agree with him. Changing the environmental factors will not necessarily remedy a problem. People are quick to dismiss the wickedness in their own heart and look to blame someone else for their sin. Right? It's true. See it all the time. Turn on the news. Look at the Garden of Eden. God created the world good and perfect, right? You could not ask for a better environmental surrounding. And what happened in the most perfect place on earth? Sin. Adam sinned. He rebelled against God. Why? His heart. If you're like me, the thought may have crossed your mind that it seems impossible to see God because of the impurity of the heart, right? Jesus seems to be suggesting something in Matthew 5, 8 that cannot be achieved. Well, sit tight. Let's dig a little bit further. Let's see the second component of this beatitude. How can we see God if the heart is wicked and God is spirit, right? In Exodus 3, going back to the Old Testament, Moses speaks about wanting to see God, but he never does see God, right? In Exodus 33, Moses asks to see the glory of God. And then God says to Moses, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. Now, if you don't know what that means, a cleft is like you got a mountain and you got a cave in the mountain. And God says, I'm going to put you into that cave, into that cleft. And cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Exodus 33, verses 19 to 23. So what's the point? The glory of God is so amazing that Moses would not be able to comprehend seeing God. Like Moses, one of the most faithful men in the Bible. And not even he can see God. You can see his back. I mean, I mean, I, that's good. That's God. But like, he wants a little more. He's like, God's like, no, you can't see him. In the New Testament, we read that no one has ever seen God except the Son of God, John 1.18. But now Jesus is telling us that we can see God if we have a pure heart. So what gives? I hope you see the tension here. What gives? Like, Jesus, don't lead me down a path that has a dead end. That's not what Jesus wants to do. He actually lead us down a path where we can truly see God. So we've got to resolve this tension. First, we need to know the difference between like spiritually seeing God and then physically seeing God. As I've said in the past, and I try to reinforce this point over and over, people are spiritual and physical beings. You can't disconnect the two. You're spiritual and physical. And so we shouldn't be surprised that seeing God happens in a sense in those two natures. And they work with one another. 
Spiritually speaking, a Christian sees God in prayer, right? Meditating on, on Scripture. Right? You read God's words. A Christian can see the works of God throughout history. Like all history belongs to God. All of it. A Christian can see God and what he has created. God isn't the creation, but his fingerprints are all over what he has created. Like even, even non-Christians are able to see that and then reject it, Romans 1. You, Christian, are constantly being molded day after day into the likeness of Christ. So we see God in, in many ways. By faith, God is seen. I, I think 1 Corinthians 13, 12 helps sum up the dynamic of seeing God. We read this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, this is like the great love chapter, right? That everyone kind of gets wrong and is always preached at weddings. This is actually the point of 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's so much of God that we can now see, here and now. But there will be a day when faith shall become sight. We, will walk, we walk by faith now, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, but there will be a day when we see Jesus face to face. One day we will see Jesus in all of his, his glory and his majesty. The Bible's promise is we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. So seeing God with the eyes of the heart, Ephesians 1.18. And someday seeing the Son of God with physical eyes is great. And really, it's more than great. We should be in awe of seeing God. But now I need to back up to my first point. I need to resolve the tension that exists because of the condition of the human heart. Here's the key that unlocks the door of the heart and the eye. The key that unlocks the heart and the eye. It's the one word, we read it, and it's purity or pure. That's the key that unlocks the door. Calvin once again says this, everyone readily agrees that the best quality anyone can possess is purity of heart and complete honesty. Without these things, every other virtue, however highly regarded, is but stuff and nonsense in God's sight. I mean, think about all the good virtues you could do in your life. And Calvin's like, top one is the top one, purity of heart. Number one. Later in his commentary on this beatitude, Calvin says purity is honesty and integrity. I think Calvin is headed into the right direction, and I appreciate how he seems to place purity as the highest virtue but it's still got to resolve this tension. Like the heart is wicked and full of sin. Who could possibly become pure? The answer is that no one can have a pure heart apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Like this is straight gospel now. Titus 3, verse 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
It is folly to try to pursue a pure heart in your own strength. That's foolishness. A fool attempts to take the matter into his own hands, and the fool fails every single time. How do I know I've lived that life? I've been that fool. However, the one who submits to God and believes in the gospel is washed clean. There's nothing you can do to make yourself clean. You need to be cleansed by God. One of my my favorite examples of an impure heart comes from the late uh, David Powelson. He compares the heart to a dirty garage rag. I've worked on my car several times throughout these last couple years and I've had these rags, right? What does it look like? What's it filled with? Filled with dirt. Filled with oil. Now the question is, and early on I thought, you could just kind of put that in the washer. It'll, it'll get clean. No, you actually have to throw that rag away once there's too much oil and dirt on it because it can't become clean. It remains impure. It may, remains oily. You try so hard to make it clean. You work so hard to make your heart pure. But no matter how hard you try, it remains filthy. But what if I told you there is one who can make the rag clean? But instead of using soap, he uses blood. We read in John 1, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Jesus is the only one who can make the foulest smelling and filthiest rag clean. I know I've thrown a lot of scripture at you this morning, but in doing so, you see how much scripture speaks about the heart and the need to be made clean because the heart is dirty from sin. So here's another crucial passage from the prophet Ezekiel. You need to remember that the prophets of old were often speaking to a people, like I said earlier, as I quoted Jeremiah, they were rebelling against God. Yet we see over and over, God does not give up on his covenant people, right? We act so foolishly, but God remains faithful. God always makes a way. Here's how God made a way. Here's how God made a way to make your filthy heart clean and pure. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. Before Christ, your heart was a heart of stone. And I will give them a heart of flesh. What are you saying there? A heart that's alive. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's covenant faithfulness right there. I'm going to take that heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart that's fleshly. It's alive. The only way you can obey God, the only way to be made clean is for God to remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What this means is there are two groups of people in the world. Like we love to put people into groups, but I'm, gonna be, I'm just going to level with you. There's only two groups of people in this world. People, the group of people that have a heart of stone and the group of people that have a heart of flesh. Those are your groups. 
Those are the only two groups that matter. One group, the heart of stone, they are dead to God because of their impurity, because of sin. The second group, the people who have been given the heart of flesh, they have been made clean because of the atoning work of Christ at the cross. This is good news. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is the best news you could ever know. And it is worth celebrating and proclaiming to a broken and sinful world. So, the justifying work of Christ has made your heart pure, Christian. But now, after he has done that for you, you're called to guard your purity. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Now, it's one thing to obtain a pure heart. The challenge is is to maintain a pure heart, right? Because of remaining sin, the Christian needs to fight against sin and fight for a pure heart. Here's the verse that hits the proverbial nail on the head. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. The word for cleansed in James 4.8 is the same Greek word used in Matthew 5.8, right? James is using it as cleansed. Jesus is using it as pure. But the Greek word for purity in James 4.8 is actually another word. It's the same word that we use for consecrate or like to set yourself apart. Set yourself apart specifically for God. The root for purity in James 4.8 is holy. So what's going on here? We read in Holy Scriptures that when God redeems, He makes His people holy. You've been made holy. And God's people are called to pursue holiness. So Christian, you've been made holy, right? But you also need to pursue holiness. We call this the act of like sanctification, right? How do you continue to grow in your relationship with God? How do you continue to look more and more like Christ? James 4.8 is an excellent verse about maintaining a pure heart in your sanctification. James calls out hypocrisy and he says, you need to draw near to God. When you draw near to God through like prayer, reading his word, coming to church on Sundays, right? An act of drawing near to God. When you worship in song and other acts of devotion, you remind yourself of what God has done for you to make your heart clean. You see God. You know, I I really want to encourage you this morning to make this this beatitude personal. If I could take all the beatitudes and say, hey, Pastor Sean, is there one that you want me to make personal? I would say it'd be this one. I'm not trying to be punny, but it is a pun. Take it to heart. It's like the only pun you'll get out of me for another six months. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the question is, do you want to see God? One of the primary ways to maintain personal purity is to repent from sin. Nothing stains the heart more than sin, as we've seen, and repentance is the path toward forgiveness and purity. Repentance should be a a daily act of devotion to God. We kind of leave it with the Catholics, right? 
they'd repent. We go into the booth. I grew up that way, right? You go to the priest and you repent, you tell them all your stuff, and then he tells you to go say five Hail Marys and you know, call it good or whatever. No. Repentance is a daily act of devotion to God. I mean, let's be honest for a moment. How is your relationship with God when you know you're in sin? How, is that, how does that relationship go, right? Not well. It's not great. Now, when you know you are in sin, there are two paths to take. The first path is toward ongoing impurity, right? Which each step you take on this path, God feels more and more distant. We shouldn't be shocked. But the second path is repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and toward God. It's like you give it to the hand and be like, I'm out. I'm going that way toward God. And you turn and you run like crazy. Repentance is an active work of faith that acknowledges that your heart is only made clean because of the blood of Christ. Now, I'm going to say this. Do not allow pride to get in the way of repentance. God wants you to live your life in conformity to the gospel and the gospel work he has done in your heart. Repentance is your opportunity to apply the gospel to your life. When you do that, you begin to obtain a bigger vision of God. You see God. You see God for who he is. Merciful, forgiving, loving. Perhaps you're listening to me and you've found that it's difficult to pursue and maintain purity in the heart, right? Sin seems to have a stranglehold on you. Like, I don't need to make a list of vices. You know your own heart. You know the sins that you're tempted to. You know the sins that entangle you. I don't need to give you the list. If you're listening, you know. If the battle against sin is hard, I actually have more good news for you. God did not save you to set you loose to maintain a pure heart on your own. There are other brothers and sisters in Christ want to walk with you. Even more to the point, God has ordained the church as the place where the people of God walk with one another to pursue and maintain a pure heart. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. That's why we're in each other's lives. We're constantly pushing each other toward God. We're walking with one another when, when life's down or we're in sin. As I was thinking about how we walk with one another to fight against sin and pursue a pure heart. My mind, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's a strange place that I went to. You can let me know later. I went to John 8. Here's the cliff notes of the story from John 8. And I want you to see how Christ responds. Jesus was in the temple teaching. And then, of course, the religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, brought uh, Jesus, a woman caught in adultery. Right? So there's Jesus teaching been faithfully doing that. And uh, the Pharisees like, we're going to trap him. We are going to trap him finally. We're going to get him. So we have a charge to level against him. We're trying to be clever. One of the religious leaders reminded Jesus that the penalty of adultery, according to the law, for women is to be stoned. Like, they're like, Jesus, found this woman called adultery. Your law says we got a stoner. What do you say? What say ye? Jesus bends down 
and writes something in the dirt. What? We do not know. People love to speculate, but we don't know. But here's what he says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then verse 8. And once more, Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older son. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. The Pharisees looked pure on the outside, but on the inside, they were impure. They were that that garage rag. In shame, the Pharisees walked away. But look at what Jesus says to the woman. He effectively says, number one, the power of the gospel is greater than your sin. There is forgiveness and no condemnation. Like, let's make a beeline to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. Like, that's good news. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The power of the gospel is greater than the power of sin. Therefore, go and sin no more. So yes, there's no condemnation that Jesus is going to put on this woman. But you've got to remember the second part of what he said to her. Go and sin no more. As the woman walked away, she now had an opportunity to live in faith with a pure heart before God and to see God. Like, how is that a model for us to walk with one another? I think it's really simple. We just do what Jesus did. We see the power of the gospel to save and forgive. And then we tell each other, hey, brother, knock it off. Sin no more. Knock it off. It's not good for you. It's not good for your relationship with God. Stop being a bill on the blank. Right? Knock it off. That's a loving thing to do. That's loving. I now want to say a word to parents about the heart of your children. Right? And I'm talking to me too, by the way. Here's the question. What steps are you taking to guard the hearts of your children? Mom, dad, what steps are you, Sean Powers, what steps are you taking to guard the heart of your children? Uh, the Greek word for pure in Matthew 5, 8, katharos, the term can be translated pure, clean, or innocent. Parents, you want to raise your kids in the Lord by protecting the innocence of their hearts. Like, I can just go back to Deuteronomy 6 and continue that passage, right? So the instructions right after what we read in Deuteronomy 6 is for, hey, parents, raise your kids in the Lord. Teach them. Parents, you want to raise your kids in the Lord by protecting the innocence of their hearts. Yes, your children are born into this world with a sinful nature, yeah? But they don't need to be exposed to everything that sin offers. Therefore, you want to put in front of their, what you put in front of the eyes, the environment you expose them to, and the filters you put in place matter. It matters. Like, I'm not trying to be a prude. I'm not trying to be Puritan about it, but try to be honest about it. It matters. What I'm not going to tell you to do is like, all the particulars of how to raise your kids. I'm not going to tell you how to educate your children, right? 
Not going to do that. If you come with me a question, I'll give you my pastoral thoughts for sure. But I want to urge all parents to take seriously the purity and innocence of your children's hearts. Raise them in the Lord. Speak truth to them. Dads, fathers, listen up. Pray with them. Pray for them. Read scripture to them. Lead out in this. Protect their heart. Help them to see God by pouring truth into their heart and protecting them from lies. Here's a good word from Psalm 24. It's for all followers of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't take long to figure out how to apply this to parenting and raising kids. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in holy places? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Parents, you want your kids to ascend to the hill of of the Lord, right? By helping them have clean hands and a pure heart. Parents, your primary ministry, your primary ministry is to raise your children in the Lord so that they may have a pure heart and see God. That is your primary ministry. Before landing this plane, I want to end with a quote from Thomas Watson, another companion of mine throughout the Beatitudes. I mean, outside the scriptures that I quoted, like this is the money quote of the day, uh, in my opinion. I think he captures this beatitude quite well. He says this. The heart must especially be kept pure because the heart is the chief seat or place of God's residence. God dwells in the heart. He takes up the heart for his own lodging. Therefore, it must be pure and holy. A king's palace must be kept from defilement, especially his presence chamber. How holy ought that to be? If the body be the temple of the Holy Ghost, the heart is the holy of holies. So take heed from defiling the room where God is to come. Let that room be washed with holy tears. Purity in heart happens when the justifying work of Christ takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And maintain purity is your call every single day. Every single day. So are you stuck in a bad spot this morning? Has sin got you down? Now is the time to lean into repentance and then receive the grace and mercy of God. Your Savior bids you to come to Him and be refreshed and renewed by His love. His love grants forgiveness of sins. There's there's no more condemnation, but hope found in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the whole purpose of religion, the Christian faith, is to see God. It's the whole purpose. Nothing is more glorious than to see God. And I want to end by asking the question, is there anything better for you than to see God? I don't think so. Therefore, as an individual, in your family, and in this church, all of us, let us pursue and maintain the purity of heart so that we may be in awe of what we see in God.
Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.